Is prison abolition possible? That's the question we're asking in this episode of Newsbeat, and the concept we're introducing for you all to consider. Radical? In the context of the reality we're currently chained to regarding the penal system here in America, which incarcerates 2.3 million of its citizens daily and enslaves roughly 12 million throughout the course of a year, whether locked up, jammed up in a system because they couldn't afford bail, on probation or electronic monitoring, known as e-carceration, or some other form of surveillance and imprisonment, eh, yeah, it's radical. But it wasn't always. In fact, in the 60s and 70s, the idea of prison abolition in the U.S. was a very real issue, being discussed among academics and politicians alike. This was before the latter passed sweeping policies and laws targeting impoverished black and brown communities and launched the still-ongoing so-called war on drugs. So I'll ask again. As more and more people learn about the sheer horrors and gross inequalities of the U.S. prison industrial complex, as more and more progressive politicians and district attorneys vow to enact reforms chipping away at its criminal legacy, as more and more citizens like yourselves learn about mass incarceration's racist underpinnings and vicious machinations and demand meaningful, lasting alternatives from elected representatives. Is prison abolition possible? What would that even look like? Because as you can imagine, a a quote-unquote prison encompasses a hell of a lot more than just windowless concrete walls entwined with barbed wire. Well, unpacking all of this for us and offering answers to these and a whole bunch of other associated questions is activist and organizer Mariam Kaba, the founder and director of nonprofit Project NIA, which, among other goals, seeks to end youth incarceration. Throughout the course of the year, we have something like 12 million people who cycle through our jails. Victoria Law, a freelance journalist, editor, activist, and author. The idea of prison abolition is that prisons cannot be reformed. They need to be eliminated. And Joshua Dubler, an author and assistant professor of religion at the University of Rochester. The reasons that we put so many people in cages has everything to do with uh, how we structure our economy and how we structure our education and how we manage racial difference in our country. And in our own unique way of amplifying these concepts through music, we have fiery original verses supplied by Brooklyn-based hip-hop artist, rapper, poet, teacher, Osiris Anthem, the recent and only back-to-back champion of the global end-of-the-week MC challenge. Trust us, it's a big freaking deal. And me, I'm Manny Faces, the host and producer of Newsbeat. And welcome to Is Prison Abolition Possible? Prisons in the United States really kick off with the Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia in 1790. It's the first kind of penal institution that people might recognize from today, though that initial jail was one where people spent the day there and then they got to go home at night. You know, it's the launch of what we begin to understand as something called the penitentiary. If you hear the term penitentiary, you hear the word penance within that. And so you can see the kind of religious roots of that institution. People thought that if you committed a harm, you needed time away from your community to basically be penitent for what you had done, but it wasn't to remove you completely from that community. It's not until 1820 with the establishment of the Auburn prison in New York that we begin to see the prison in its modern incarnation that people would recognize today. Auburn has the striped uniforms, which people associate with prisons. Auburn initiates solitary confinement and individual cells. Auburn institutes the policy of people staying in prison all day for years and years. 
early prisons had men and women mixed together. Children were incarcerated in jails and prisons early on. Over time, reforms came into being to begin to separate out the genders and then also begin to separate people out according to age. That was all seen as a reform that would be a positive reform. The jail and the prison itself was seen as a reform, as a reform to corporal punishment and capital punishment. So instead of killing you for what was going on, we would incarcerate you. And that was seen as more humane. Pretty early on though, in the early 19th century um, to the mid 19th century, people, reformers, critics, others began to already understand that the prison itself was a form of torture, that that reform had failed, and that people needed to do more reforms in order to fix the failed reform. So the history of prisons in the United States, at least, has been a history of reform after reform after reform. And yet the very totalitarian total control of the prison the system itself of domination has always remained the same. Prisons have never been places of quote, rehabilitation. They've been places of punishment. They always have been. The rhetoric around prisons has had a lot of rehabilitation language, but the reality is that it's always been a, an institute of control and punishment, social control and punishment. Really in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you have people who are early abolitionists, early PIC abolitionists, who are talking about kind of the end of prisons. People really believe that that was possible. We had less than 300,000 people in 1970 in both our jails and prisons. While if you look at a point in time and you see a whole bunch of folks, you know, they say the number 700,000 people in our jails, that's not actually true. That's on any given day. But throughout the course of the year, we have something like 12 million people who cycle through our jails. These are all people who have contact with the system. If you look at the number of people on parole and probation, if you look at everybody who's under e-incarceration, that's millions and millions of people a year who are caught up within the system. You know, we have over 70 million people in the United States with criminal records. You know, that's, that's astronomical. I don't think people understand the scale of criminalization and its impact on people. It is really difficult to not know somebody who's come into contact with the prison industrial complex, um, which is not just about prisons, right? It's about policing and it's about surveillance and it's about all the other things that are part of the ways in which the state controls us and finds its way to dominate us and finds its way to disenfranchise us. This is convict music with no Akon contracts Breaking nuclear homes, A-bomb contact Punishment for crimes, I can't hate on all that But I so-called criminals, they all all black and brown Arrested for cracking vials, packs allowed And dragged forth and back to trial And so we dealing with the tribulations Swallow your pride inside for the cavity searches During the visitations, anything's a crime When they want you in chains, bling bling That's the sound of closing of the cage I read 1984 and 2003, the same year I had my first run in with the D's, they say they take me in for truancy, but I was all sick, they were the ones that were out of class truthfully, the school of hard knocks, you know the deal, your life is just collateral when it comes to getting them quotas filled. The idea of prison abolition is that prisons cannot be reformed, they need to be eliminated, like you cannot reform a system that is working the way it has been intended to. So if you think of 
ideas around, say, police violence or other forms of state violence, you can either think, oh, the system is broken, and if we just do these things to change it and we can tinker with it, we can make it better and it won't do these things like kill black people or incarcerate 2.3 million people, many of whom are incarcerated because they did not have other opportunities in life. Abolition looks at the larger picture, which says this is a system that works as it is intended to. So if we think about mass incarceration, not simply as the war on drugs, but looking at it as a response to the various civil rights and liberation struggles that were happening in the United States in the 1960s and early 1970s, and thinking about it as a response to marginalized communities and to people who might become organizers and agitators before they had a chance to organize. Nixon said that we cannot have a society in which some people choose to obey the law and some people do not, like everybody has to obey the law, and realized that he was talking about the civil rights movement and civil disobedience. This is a nation of laws, and as Abraham Lincoln has said, no one is above the law, no one is below the law. And we're going to enforce the law, and Americans should remember that if we're going to have law. He was not talking about street crime, but politicians conflated street crime with the images people were seeing on their TVs every night of black people doing things like sit-ins and marching for their rights and, you know, being attacked by police. When we talk about marching by the thousands, we always prepare ourselves for the cholera. If it is necessary, we are willing and must be willing to go to jail by the thousands in Alabama. And this got conflated by politicians as like, look, crime is up. People are not obeying the law. We need to do something about that. What happened between the 1970s and today? There are three primary stories that scholars and activists lean on to explain how we come by what the general public knows as mass incarceration and what abolitionists know as the prison industrial complex. And those stories are at root stories about race, stories about economics, and stories about politics. The racial story, which is the most familiar one and, and which really is a powerful movement narrative, looks at the rise of mass incarceration or uh, the prison industrial complex in the long history of racial caste in America moving from slavery to Jim Crow and then the loosening of the civil rights movement and then looks at mass incarceration as a backlash against that. The economic argument that tells a number of, of different stories about post-industrialization, about the ratcheting down of state capacities in certain way around military spending, and the emergence of surplus populations that could be managed through incarceration, both by providing jobs for certain sectors of the population, disproportionately white and rural, and dealing with the surplus urban population, disproportionately black and brown, for whom there was no longer gainful employment in the new economy. The third story that people tell uh, is around politics and the emergence of law and order politics on the right under Goldwater and Nixon's Southern strategy. Liberals playing a certain kind of useful idiot role, concerned primarily about racial disparities that lead to a ratchet effect in which racial disparities are eliminated by tougher punishment for everyone. And then prison building becomes a boom in the 1980s, and it's a wedge issue that the Republicans use against the Democrats. The increase in citizen involvement of the crime problem and the tough new state statutes directed at 
repeat offenders make it clear that the American people are reasserting certain enduring truths, the belief that right and wrong do matter, that individuals are responsible for their actions, that evil is frequently a conscious choice, and that retribution must be swift and sure for those who decide to make a career of preying on the innocent. Clintonism took away that wedge issue by making mass incarceration a consensus politics. Today the bickering stops, the era of excuses is over, the law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. And so between 1992 and 2008 and the financial crash, there was simply no politician on the national stage who was going to waste any social capital on the rights of incarcerated people or of criminal defendants. You know what, right now, breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis. And this is all because we're waking up to two fewer investment banks on Wall Street. Lehman Brothers has filed for bankruptcy and Bank of America is taking over Merrill Lynch in a $50 billion deal. So between those three factors, you get to where we are today. Throughout the period of mass incarceration, there have been vocal advocates calling for prison abolition, and those forces have been drowned out. But beginning at the end of the 1990s, those forces began organizing concertedly, a critical resistance in California being the most obvious example. And then in the present decade, we see, for a variety of reasons, the idea of abolishing prisons move in from the margins and into the mainstream conversation. This is convict music with no styles P-verse Slave labor in them prisons Major Nikes heard So if you marching for the homies Wear charcoal pumas That's the closest that you'll get to black Panther and maneuvers Nixon criminalized us Fighting for our lives Like hose down these Negroes Marching right outside Reagan carried the torch With the war on drogas Locking everyone in sight The hood cried no mas But no relief Stiff mattress No sheets Two million folks who got Snatched up off the streets Many can't make bail And die It's overcrowded You crazy if you you think there's only one Khalif Browder And Clinton's crime bill had Giuliani Rollin Cuffs on wrists was his fame in the 90s Now they legalizing everything that got you on Rikers While you try your best to not be food for the lifers I'm talking about PIC abolition That's the history that, that comes from The work that's been done That laid the groundwork for me to even understand abolition as a concept comes from people like Angela Davis. Prison abolitionists, as opposed to prison reformers, uh, make the point uh, that oftentimes reforms uh, uh, create situations where um, mass incarceration becomes even more entrenched. Comes from people like Faye Knopp, comes from people like Ruthie Gilmore, Prisons have become almost um, quasi-religious in so far as people imagine that they are necessary at the scale and scope to which they've developed over the last 30 years. I see abolition as both a political vision with a goal, but also as a practical organizing strategy. Critical resistance says that abolition really isn't just about getting rid of buildings full of cages, but we also have to focus on undoing the actual society we live in because the PIC feeds on and maintains oppression and inequalities through punishment and violence. So it's not isolated, it's part of the larger systems in which we live. 
Ruthie Gilmore talks about abolition as about presence and not mainly about absence or about dismantling. It's also about building something, an alternate vision of a world in which we want to live. Both things are important in order for us to be able to do that. And I know that's not what people think of when you hear the term abolish. I think people think of something really drastic that happens immediately. And the history of even, you know, of, of the abolition of chattel slavery teaches us that things don't happen abruptly, that they are, happen over time with forethought and strategy and persistence and connecting those individual actions we take to a broader movement. So all those things are true. And we have to always think about the fact that abolition is really a creative endeavor. It's about thinking of things anew. And it's a very hopeful and a very positive project. I think a lot of people want to think of it as mainly a project of destruction, and that is part of it. You have to destroy things in order for new things to emerge in their place. But it's also a project of positive, hopeful creation. We currently use cages to keep human beings in there for a load of reasons that have to do with the management of poor populations, of unruly populations, of mentally ill populations. That seems to be the system that we have. What we replace the system with and, and how we get there, this is the question that I think abolitionists are encouraging all of us to ask. There's no single one fix, right? The reasons that we put so many people in cages has everything to do with uh, how we structure our economy and how we structure our education and how we manage racial difference in our country and, and white supremacy. And to build a world without prisons is going to require systemic interventions that deal with a host of other malignant social characteristics. That question is not a question for one person. That question is a question for our society as a whole. If you feel like the current way we are addressing harms is good and works for you, then I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people who actually, when harm happens to them, prefer nothing to what we currently have. And that is the majority of the population. Because frankly, when harms occur to us, whether it's a rape or something else, often we don't actually turn to the systems that currently exist to get what we call justice. Those systems are already seen by many millions of people in this country and beyond as unjust, as not gonna get you what you need. So people just choose to use alternative means already to address harms. And those means include anything from vigilante violence themselves to nothing. This is convict music with no T-Pain slow jams. Abolition movements, get with the program. We want them all shut, boy, the system didn't jail with us. Since the war nut prison lived in Philadelphia. No, not reform, let it all burn. Word to the joint in New York called the Auburn. That's where it all started, but it no longer functions. Prisons cannot be the anchor of justice. The words of Angela Davis, mind opening. Why hold them in where we can find different skills that we can coach them in? Giving hope to men and women with unfair circumstances. Let's turn our backs to the anti-social normative It's pejorative, this song isn't just performative I know we ought to live better Read Golden Gulag, Ruthie Gilmore authored it The prison industrial complex is not the highest order, kid Damn, makes you think that there could be a better way, right? I mean, there's gotta be 
And although it may not feel like it, especially if you're new to the concept of mass incarceration or prison reform or abolition, we're here to tell you that such seismic change like that which you've just heard about in this episode really does begin with the individual, you. Once again, this is Newsbeat's producer and host, Manny Faces. So how can you make a difference when it comes to something like this? Well, to start, you can spread the word about this episode. Share it with your friends and loved ones. Share it with the people you think need to hear the message. Second, continue learning more about the concepts presented here and our brilliant guests. And if the spirit moves you, get involved. Mariam Kaba focuses on ending violence, dismantling the prison industrial complex, transformative justice, and supporting youth leadership development. Following two decades of such work in Chicago, she moved back to her hometown of New York City in 2016. Mariam is the founder and director of Project NIA, a grassroots organization with the long-term goal of ending youth incarceration. Prior to starting NIA, she worked as a program officer for education and youth development at the Steens Family Foundation, concentrating on grant-making and program evaluation. Mariam's co-founded multiple organizations and projects throughout the years, way too many to mention here, but including the Chicago Freedom School, the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women, the Chicago Alliance to Free Marissa Alexander, and the Rogers Park Young Women's Action Team, or YWAT, among many others. She's also served on numerous nonprofit boards. Learn more about Mariam, her many projects, and how you can help out at mariamkaba.com. That's M-A-R-I-A-M-E-K-A-B-A.com. And Project Nia. Org, project NIA.org. Victoria Law is a freelance journalist and editor, activist, and author who frequently writes about the intersections between mass incarceration, gender, and resistance. Her articles have appeared in The Village Voice, The Nation, Gothamist, Truth Out, Bitch Media, and Rewire News, among many other outlets. She was also a guest on our previous episode, Alone and Abused, Prison Rape in the Me Too Era. Victoria authored the must-read Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-edited Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, Concrete Ways to Support Families in Social Justice Movements and Communities. Pick those up on Amazon and visit victorialaw.net to read many of her stories and learn more about her causes and activism. Joshua Doubler is an assistant professor of religion at the University of Rochester, co-author of Bang, Thud, World Spirit from a Texas School Book Depository, and author of Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison, both available on Amazon. He also co-authored a May 2018 Guardian article titled Think Prison Abolition in America is Impossible? It Once Felt Inevitable. Joshua is taught at Haverford College, Columbia University, and Villanova University's program at Greater Ford Prison. Contact him at joshua.dubler, D-U-B-L-E-R, at rochester.edu. My last count, Brooklyn-based hip-hop artist, rapper, poet, teacher, and entertainer Osiris Anthem is a 17-time champion of New York City's long-running hip-hop performance series Freestyle Mondays and most recently was crowned the only ever back-to-back champion of the global end-of-the-week MC Challenge for both 2017 and 2018. Check out some of his insane performances at eodub.com on Bandcamp, Spotify, SoundCloud, Facebook, and follow his countless hip-hop exploits on Instagram at Maroon Waters. He's simply an incredibly talented and really cool cat. Follow him. Support him. And as always, Newsbeat is brought to you by Maury Creative Studios, a growth-driven New York-based HubSpot partner agency helping companies leverage the HubSpot platform to achieve sustainable digital growth. Check them out at maurycreative.com, M-O-R-E-Y creative.com, and grow for good. Now remember, there's a full-blown cover story accompanying this and every episode, along with extended guest and musical artist bios, all of our previous episodes, and much more on usnewsbeat.com. There's also some pretty kick-ass Newsbeat swag in the online store that, you know, would make a good stocking stuff for this holiday season, just saying. 
Newsbeat's made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. So if you were moved or inspired by what you've heard, please consider contributing to the cause at usnewsbeat.com support. Subscribe and rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you listen to your favorite program. Once again, I'm Manny Faces, the producer and host of Newsbeat. This will be our last episode for 2018. So on behalf of the entire Newsbeat crew, happy holidays, happy new year. And as always, thank you for listening. Power to the people. One love. We're out.